Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with my co-host Zoigma. Our guest today is Mr. Ethan Hutchinson. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you. Uh, Ethan has been a teacher, well, he's currently a teacher with me at Shoreland Lutheran High School, but he's had a lot of experience teaching at high schools. Uh, he was formerly at uh, Wausau, Wisconsin, uh, principal of a grade school there and principal of another grade school in uh, Appleton. But before that, he was at East Fork Lutheran High School in Arizona. And uh, one year, you said, at uh, St. Croix Lutheran High School in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Yep. (laughs) So, Ethan, why don't you talk to us about... Being a principal of a grade school, first of all, what is that like? Um, a lot of meetings. Uh, so it, it's, it was a bit of a challenge when I first started because I didn't have a whole lot of administration time. Uh, so I was spending the vast majority of my time in the classroom. Uh, as the years went on, uh, we slowly increased the amount of admin time to spend in the office to work on uh, policy and have time to observe in classrooms. Um, supervise instruction, those types of things. Um, so then I was spending less and less time in the classroom teaching um, and spending more time working on um, accreditation policies and things of that nature. So, And you were just telling us, we, we spent a little time with the Hutchinsons yesterday, and you were just telling us that you didn't necessarily enjoy the administrative work. It was just that that was what was needed, and uh, what you would have preferred is to spend more time in the classroom, but they needed... That, that principal administration. Yeah, I don't dislike the administrative work, but I don't necessarily find it to be the energizing part of ministry. So I enjoy working with kids and having the opportunity to interact with them and talk with them and directly do ministry that way. So, so Ethan, how do, you, how do we as a synod train up more men to become principals? Because I know that's a difficult thing. I think the biggest challenge is probably identifying kids when they're in, in high school who show traits for administration um, and encouraging them to to go on to train to be teachers, but with an emphasis on like the intention of going forward and being principals so that they can um, go into the master's programs either at Martin Luther College or, or elsewhere and study for administration, school administration. So, So then... Talk about being at the high school, you know, especially like East Fork, because I'm sure our listeners have no idea what what East Fork Lutheran High School is or was. Yeah, so um, I was assigned out of Martin Luther College to uh, East Fork Lutheran High School, which is actually our first, uh, East Fork was our first Synod World Mission um, site on the Apache Reservation. So um, why was it a world mission site when it's inside the United States? Uh, basically based on timing, because it started so long ago, back in the 1800s. Um, but then in addition to that, uh, it is a, a sovereign nation, uh, the, the tribal lands there. So it still technically is in this oddball situation of being, yes, part of the United States, but also being somewhat outside of the United States on sovereign land. So. And it's a different language. And there is a different language, although not too many of the kids speak Apache anymore. So, um, but they're, they're their own governance, their own police force, their own. They have all their own uh, political structure unto they, themselves. They do, yeah. 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 So, so what what was both difficult and edifying in that ministry at Saint Croix, or not Saint Croix, but at uh, East Fork? Um, it was. A unique experience, that's for sure. I remember when we first drove on to the reservation moving down there, you could definitely tell you were entering into a completely different world. Um, it didn't look like um, the rest of the United States. Um, and so there was a general um, level of poverty uh, that was a unique challenge there. Um, there were also other unique cultural challenges to ministry, but um, I think the the joy was just... You know, believers in Christ, they don't necessarily look exactly like us or talk always exactly like us, but uh, they, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And having that opportunity to share the gospel there with, um, with teenagers and their families was a really cool opportunity. So um, 
from a teaching standpoint, I was teaching mostly science, but every year it changed. We only had a faculty of four for a high school, so there was no such thing as a free period. How many students then? Uh, There were about 60, 65 when I was there, so it wasn't real large. Um, That was uh, part of what uh, was the constant challenge, too, was was funding. At the time, um, we had just, the the East Fork Mission had just come off of full synod subsidy and was seeking ways to fund itself. Uh, So every year was kind of a question mark, would we have enough funding to continue the ministry for the high school and and serving the kids there? was, there was a lot of unique challenges in those just three years that we were down there. So, so you were just the science department. You didn't double up on. I bet there were if with four people, there had to have been doubling up of departments. Yeah, there was a year where I was teaching religion. Another year where I taught phi ed. Um, the best one was the year that we had to add a foreign language so that the kids would meet the requirement for going to um, for going to college at a Arizona State University. So. Um, I ended up having to teach Spanish for a year, uh, which I only had two years of Spanish in high school, so that was an experience. <laughs> but I was the closest on the faculty to having had learned a foreign language in the recent history, so it, it was put to me. But yeah. <clears throat> Well, I remember uh, at, at one school there was an, an aide in the school, and there was water on the floor, and she had made a comment like, oh, I don't, I'm sure that other teachers and aides don't have to do this in, in other schools. I'm thinking, no, I'm pretty sure this is what you have to do. Because when we had Dave Ring, our former principal at, well, he's our principal at WLS, and we had him on a few uh, months ago, and he was at another high school like you were at, and he was saying how you did everything. You know, you you were driving the bus, you were the announcer for the basketball games, in, in addition to teaching the kids yeah our our closest road game for basketball was over an hour away um most of them were two to three hours uh from from our high school so with mountainous and driving involved as well and we always had to drive so generally we'd be coming home at like one in the morning from basketball games two in the morning from basketball games driving home with the team so yeah we did all the driving and then the summer was spent doing a lot of maintenance in the school and painting and all that stuff too so we generally uh cleaned the carpets painted the walls did everything over the summer and try to keep the school up in good shape so what else did you coach uh, there, I mainly just coached basketball. I helped out occasionally with uh, some things with football, um, but more than anything, basketball. Basketball was the big sport on the reservation. Everybody just loved basketball, so um, we spent a lot of time coaching. I, I, I coached uh, girls basketball the three years that I was there. So. Have Have the Apaches gotten into lacrosse? Uh, no, that wasn't uh, a popular just, sport at the time. Uh, that's just an inter- it's just a sport that I had seen, and I don't know if it's Sports <clears throat> Illustrated and so forth, that that was one of the things. You think of that it's a sport kind of for ritzy kid, white kids out northeast and so forth, but what, when I was reading the article, there were a lot of uh, the American Indians that were kind of getting into that sport as well. That's what I was asking. Well, and it originated with... <laughs> Yeah, it would originated with Native Americans, okay. yeah, but it was more of the Northeast and, and um, Native American tribes that were into lacrosse. So, okay. uh, basketball was definitely the sport of the reservation. As a matter of fact, uh, the, one of the years that I was down there, we, we took the girls down into the state tournament, and, and we played at um, uh, America West Arena, it was called at the time, um, for the, the state championship. And I think half the town of Whitewater followed us down in a caravan to come and watch the basketball game. So uh, it was kind of crazy that way. So Whitewater was the town on the reservation where yeah. East Fork was? Yeah, White River, sorry. White, White River. River. Uh, is So East Fork is just outside of White River, and I guess White River is kind of a town. There's a post office and a grocery store and a sawmill and the fire station and the, and the courthouse. That's, that's about it. So, <laughs> What were some of the big, biggest struggles with that uh, ministry? Um, I think there was a certain aspect of trying to earn trust. Um, I know it's odd saying because we were only there for three years, but that's kind of been a common theme. Uh, teachers and called workers generally stay for a very, very long time or they're only there for a very short time. Um, and so earning the trust that, that you're there uh, for them, um, not for yourself, um, and, and trying to uh, build the relationships in a culture that's not your own, um, trying to get used to uh, new cultural norms and, and expectations. So. 
And now you're at Shoreland. So tell us about your ministry just down the road from where we are right now. Uh, so at Shoreland, I was called uh, to teach um, STEM classes, engineering, and I also teach math right now. Um, with the changes in enrollment and changes in staff, that's likely to change in the future. Uh, I probably will not be teaching math next year. Uh, I'll be teaching science. Um, so uh, I also help coach uh, cross country and work with our robotics teams throughout the year. Uh, which is the longest uh, season of any activity at Shoreland, I think. It starts in, um, well, the summer as far as the kids wanted to, and then it continues on and through uh, the end of April generally. So, And then they want to get started on the next season right away. So uh, the robotic season lasts a long time. And then I, I have been helping the last uh, couple years with softball, and I will probably be doing that a little unofficially as well this year. Because so. you're bored. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, no, I, I enjoy the I enjoy the team and the coaches. It's a lot of fun to work with. So, so I wore my cross country shirt because you're uh, you're the cross country one of the cross country coaches. But what was so special about this season for cross country, especially for the girls? Well, it was it was a really good season. We had um, kind of an unexpected turn for the girls because we had a number of uh, new freshmen that really helped us out and um, kind of built a team. And the girls ended up winning the conference. Uh, which was really cool. Haven't done that since... I think it was like 40 years. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, it was back in the 90s. Um, and then and then um, uh, they, they just missed qualifying for the state state championships too. So it was a good team. A lot of excitement and a lot of future, I think, there for, for that group. So, Who is your favorite student at Shoreland? <laughs> the kids ask this all the time. Um, I, I guess I technically have to say my son. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't have a favorite student. I enjoy them all. So, Jeremy, who what do you it? think like of Bell Zarling? Oh, Bell Bell's of... pretty good. Bell's okay. pretty good. I don't have her in class anymore, though. I had her last year for geometry. So, what about Gabe Lighton? Uh, Gabe's a pretty good kid. I do have him this year. Uh, I don't know if he necessarily loves geometry. Um, my general thing that I get from students is how much they hate my class, and then they assure me, "But we like you, uh, but we hate geometry." So. See, I was just the opposite. I I always hated math. I really hated algebra. But when I got into geometry, I was like, this is awesome. I love the proofs and the shapes and the dissecting and bisecting. And yeah, I love the logical reasoning of it. That's, that's right. I really enjoy it. I, kids think I'm weird because I like writing proofs. But one of the kids at the end of the class a couple weeks ago asked me um, if I could spend the last 15 minutes talking about something I was really passionate about. He was trying to get me off topic. And I said, well, I'm really passionate about geometric proofs. And, <laughs> and he said, wow, that really backfired. <laughs> so what about robotics? Uh, why is that so popular? Because I see that in our grade school as well. We had two of our teams that went to the Nationals um, down in Texas this last year. And, and I, I know you got a big tournament coming up uh, this month in in. Well, in January at Shoreland that you guys are hosting. So why is robotics so popular? Um, I think it offers uh, kids an opportunity to do something they don't get to do otherwise. Um, uh, think in a different way, participate in a different way. Uh, start from scratch, design and build and code, um, and be a part of something that um, is is pretty cool in their um, using, using intellectual uh, gifts and teamwork gifts and all those different things to um, to to work together to accomplish a goal. Um, it's, it's described as the most exciting two minutes in robotics when the, during the competition for the high school. And, and it is pretty, pretty fast and furious as far as what's going on there. And there's a lot of reacting to um, how they're competing with other, the other robots. Um, so, yeah, we, we have our tournament coming up um, second week, weekend in January. We host the largest uh, robotics tournament in southeast Wisconsin. Uh, we've got a large number of high schools coming. Um, for the for the tournament on Saturday and and Sunday even more so with the grade school middle school for the IQ tournament and we actually have the the number one ranked team in the country um, coming to us from Indiana on Sunday to compete so um, that'll push the push the competition up a little for some of our kids who uh, get to see that so yeah and the reason I know about the robotics tournament is well we've got a number of our kids from WLS and Shoreland that are in it and I was trying to plan a youth activity in January for the teens. And, it, and I looked at the weekend, and it's oh, there's a robotics tournament because I wanted to do a Lego building contest. But then I 
you know, was talking to one of the parents, and he happens to be the also the coach for WLS for robotics. And he said, yeah, in a Venn diagram of uh, the kids that are involved in robotics and the kids that like to play with Legos, the Lego that they're basically the same. It's a circle. Yeah, yeah, it's one circle. Yeah, it's one circle. <laughs> they are the same group of kids, uh, which is good. And we'll we'll just move our Lego building contest to another month. But yeah. I, and I'm going to try and show up over there at the robotic tournament, even though I know nothing about robotics, just to be able to hang out with the kids and support them. Yeah, it's a neat opportunity. It's going to be a full house. Um, so uh, we're we're actually a little concerned about the amount of space as we're laying things out, but we're going to make it work because um, we have a lot more teams coming this year than we've had in the past, So, um, which takes up more space, but it'll be a lot of fun. You got them coming from Indiana. Yeah, that one really surprised us. So um, they were looking for a tournament and be fun. Um, looking forward to seeing them and just seeing how they compete. I know that our kids here from WLS have, have put together some pretty good robots and um, done some good work too. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how they can compete along with that group and how they fit in with that. Are you ever going to get to the point of like robot wars where they're going after each other i don't think so okay. uh, the, the time it takes for the kids to build the robots that we're currently doing um they just invest so many so many hours into it and um there are other robotics competitions there's actually a sumo bots competition that takes place at gateway um, but we can't figure out how we would find the time for the kids to do both so what is that what does that entail uh that's building a robot uh more out of whatever you want to build it out of uh for a certain standpoint because our kids use just the vex robotics platform to build their robots um, but that one you build whatever you want and you actually your goal is to be quick agile but also heavy uh, because you get into the ring with another robot and just like sumo wrestling they try to push each other out of the ring so um, but they have to be able to be quick because there's other tasks they have to accomplish as well uh, besides the one-on-one -on -one sumo competition so hmm how long before uh, do you think before Shoreland gets esports or competitive gaming? You know, that's a good question. I think we have to find the right person to be in charge of that. They asked me when I first came if that's something I would be interested in. And I said, I'm really not into esports, so that's not my, my realm. So, Do you know, I asked a student that. I was asked that, but then I passed it along to a student who I know is more of a gamer than other students. And uh, his answer was... The coach for esports should be Mrs. Megan Rosenau. Oh, really? Yeah, she is into her video games. I think that she'd probably be a good fit there. But uh, she she's also doing drama and forensics. So um, and, and has a new baby. And has a new baby at home. So that'll be a that would be a challenge. Um, is that? I, I did see one of my classmates from college that he was coaching in esports up in Manitowoc. So is that something that is becoming more popular among our area Lutheran high schools even? I think it's growing in the area Lutheran high schools. It's definitely grown in other areas. It's a challenging one. I always feel like I think kids play enough video games, um, but they don't necessarily need to make that a, a high school competition. But I, I like the aspect of the robotics because there's so much creativity involved in it and design and, and engineering aspect and math and just all sorts of like uh, other skills involved in it rather than just the ability to use a controller which you also need to have for the the robotics because a minute and 45 seconds of the two minutes is actually um, driver control so kids need to to be able to operate the controller which is is more challenging than video games and kids learn that slowly but surely because you're working in a 3d world um, and so everything's going in different directions at different times so kind of have to adjust in your thought process of of using a controller so for the remaining two or three minutes uh, before we get into the gospel, would you just talk about whatever you're really passionate about? <laughs> Geometric proofs. No. Um, what am I passionate about? I don't know. Well, what what's special about this coming Sunday at, at Water of Life? What are you and your son doing? Um, well, I'll be leading the, the service and doing the liturgy. Uh, my son, who is a freshman at Martin Luther College in the teacher track, training to be a, well, kind of following my footsteps, physics and chemistry teacher, he's uh, training. He's going to be doing the devotion and, and doing the readings in the service. So, Yeah, so this Sunday, since we have our college students home, we're blessed that we're going to have two of our Wisconsin Lutheran College young ladies. They're going to be singing at the Racine campus and then Max Holmes. Uh, he's going to be doing the same thing at the Racine campus for both services of doing the scripture readings and the sermon. And he's a senior. 
and then to have Elijah doing the scripture readings. And uh, our people really like like seeing our young people involved in the ministry at the church this way because we do ask them to support our students at WLC and MLC, both in the budget and then with special gifts and so forth. So that's why I ask the ask the guys and the ladies to to help out a little bit. All right, you want to get into the gospel reading? Sure. <clears throat> the gospel is from Matthew chapter two, verses thirteen to the end of the chapter. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, because Herod will search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord, by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he was furious. He issued orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding countryside from two years old and under. This was in keeping with the exact time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. The angel said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to kill the child are dead. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, had succeeded his father as ruler in Judea, He was afraid to go there. Since he had been warned in a dream, he went to the region of Galilee. When he arrived there, he settled in a city called Nazareth. So what was spoken through the prophets was fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. So, Ethan, why did the angel tell Joseph to take his family and leave for Egypt? Well, he knew that Herod was out to to kill Jesus and um, wanted to ensure the um, the promised um, salvation of the people, so through Jesus. Yeah, uh, Herod wanted the baby dead uh, because he felt that this child, this son, was going to be a threat to his crown. And when you look at history, Herod did the same thing to his own sons. And then, you know, why Egypt? And it's interesting that God's people often found Egypt a place of refuge that Abraham went there during the famine. Uh, Jacob and his 70 souls and his family, they went there during the famine. Uh, Jeroboam went to Egypt when Solomon tried to kill him. Uriah fled to Egypt. And then there are probably a lot of Jews that were there in Egypt so that Mary and Joseph uh, could feel at home. And then, you know, just to think about with the Magi just leaving, and they had left some pretty expensive gifts that they could use those gifts then to fund their trip there. And then Joseph, being a carpenter, could probably find some work there as well. Jeremy, how did the flight to Egypt fulfill the prophecy of Hosea 11, verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son? Because uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and uh, when God sent the angel that second time to Joseph, as we heard, uh, God was calling his son out of Egypt. Okay. Yeah, and that the Old Testament nation of Israel was a type or a symbol of the Messiah. Uh, Ethan, when King Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he's furious. He went on a murderous rampage and slaughtered the baby boys who were two years and younger in Bethlehem. How did this fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, verse 15? A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The simple answer, I guess, uh, the the fact that Herod went through this... Bethlehem and um, had the babies killed. I, 
and, and obviously they weren't comforted, you know, from that. I, I found it interesting. I was reading on this and I guess I'd never thought about it before. Just simply the size of Bethlehem. Uh, this wasn't necessarily hundreds of children, right? This may have been maybe six. Yep. Or a dozen. You know, it, yeah. it wasn't probably a large number. And yet, uh, those moms were not comforted by the, you know, in the loss of their children. So do you have anything to add to this prophecy, Jeremy? Uh, I was just thinking about visiting Bethlehem and how they had uh, in the church of the nativity there. Um, I think it's in the basement or in the lower portions of the church. They have a little uh, section set apart that according to tradition is the burial site of all of the boys that uh, you, you can't really see much of anything. It's behind some gated bars, but uh, it, it, you could imagine at least. It, it gets you thinking about it, and that's uh, a good thing to think about. So this is what I had in my notes on this prophecy, that Ramah was a town about five miles north of Jerusalem. Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, had died in childbirth between Ramah and Bethlehem, and she's buried near Bethlehem. In 586 B.C., Jewish captives were assembled at Ramah for deportation to Babylon. In Jeremiah's Lament, Rachel serves as a representative of Jewish mothers who wept over Israel's tragedy in Jeremiah's time, which is about 586 B.C. And so here in Matthew, Rachel represents the mothers who were weeping after the murder of their little boys at Bethlehem where Rachel was buried. And Jeremy, the next question, what is the sad irony of Herod trying to kill the baby Jesus? Uh, is it that he's going to die anyway? That uh, he, Well, Herod doesn't need to be worried about it because Jesus is not a uh, threat to his political power. Um, but, uh, but Jesus is going to die anyway. It's, it's just going to happen much later. Yeah, and what I was thinking there with that question is here is trying to kill his savior. You know, he's trying to kill the the real king. How old do you think Jesus is around this time? Have you guys thought about? It says that the wise men gave Herod some kind of indication that uh, Jesus had to be no older than two, and so that's what then gave Herod the idea to stick with two-year-olds and under, but um, what were you going to say? I would say it was probably based on when the wise men had seen the star appear and that communication with Herod uh, that he had put together that it's been about two years since the star appeared and the wise men didn't return. So it's it's probably, he's aiming to get at least, you know, maybe, maybe up to two years, but probably not older. You right. know, at our last recording, my wife pointed out that nobody's ever firing the questions back at you. So I, I actually have a, a thought to yeah. myself. You, as long as you bring up um, Herod killing his savior, th- this is something that always kind of puzzled me ever since I was little and heard this story that um, if Herod truly thought that this was the Messiah, then d- d- there, there seems to be a discrepancy. What... Why would he try to kill the Messiah if he really did genuinely think that this was the Messiah? Well, I don't think he believed that he was the Messiah, you know, of the Old Testament as far as a savior. I think he's more looking at him as a king that's a threat to his throne. But the reason I asked the previous question of just that idea of he's trying to kill a king as an infant who is going to turn out to be his savior, if you would believe in him. Uh, what I was thinking about with the with the age, uh, and I was just listening to a podcast of Professor Meyer, uh, who is now retired from Western Western Michigan University, uh, and he was talking about how the the baby Jesus is probably around six months old, uh, and what he was talking about was he had to be at least forty one days old because he had gone to the temple, seen Simeon and Anna there. So uh, he's, he's at least that old. And then, uh, you know, like you said, Ethan, King Herod's probably just telling the soldiers, just take out any kids and, you know, anyone that looks like they're two years old or younger, just kill them. Uh, 
And and what uh, Professor Meyer was talking about too is, you know, we talk about Jesus being maybe two years old. Is that means Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem away from home for two years? And he asked the question of, well, which is easier uh, and which is cheaper to live at home or on the road? So, you know, they're probably not going to be there terribly long. Uh, And so you see that Herod was, uh, that he was opposed to Christ. And I'll ask this question to both of you guys. Where do you see people being opposed to Christ and Christianity today? Yeah, all around us. <laughs> I was gonna say everywhere. <clears throat> well, I, I was thinking about this and that. Uh, you know, some of the podcasts that I listen to, they talk about you know TikTok videos, which I I tell my daughters you need to delete that that app from your phone. That's that's from the devil. And and reason with that too is you see some of these videos of these people who are supposedly transgender, and they're talking about they and them as pronouns or us and we, you know, the plural uh, or Zezer, they're making things up. Or I was talking to my nephews who go to a public high school and they were talking about how they had furries in their school, you know, and, and I firmly believe that, you know, there's got to be some kind of something with demons there because demons are talking in the plural, they, them, it's a different language. It's totally opposite and opposed to Christianity. I, I think you should probably explain for your listeners what furries are, as long as you use that I term. I really don't want to explain it. It's, it's people that, and what they were talking, what my nephews were talking about was, you know, they have students that come dressed as an animal, like a dog or a cat. They believe that they're an animal, and then they actually have like a cat litter and so forth that they use to use for the bathroom. I, I was listening to a comic who was uh, talking about taking his son to school, and uh, there was a kid in the class who thought he was a lion, and uh, and his son uh, took off his shirt, and, and the dad was really proud of his son taking off his shirt in kindergarten, uh, but then the teacher came and told him to put his shirt back on, and he said, but you've got a kid over here who thinks he's a lion. My son can't take his shirt off, but this kid thinks he's a lion? <laughs> Can you think of other examples where where our culture is just opposed to Christianity? Well, I, I think those are the really obvious examples where where people are just blatantly speaking against um, what what is so clearly um, Christian teaching. Uh, you know what I mean? But I think some of the ones that maybe slide more under the radar is where people, under the guise of being Christian, are... are preaching a religion that's not Christian, you know, that's, that focuses more on righteousness through works, um, than on, than on Christ. Uh, if that makes sense, you know, the, the opposition to Christ through, um, more of a hidden means. We, we were just walking downtown Racine yesterday and, uh, Micah, our middle son was telling us about how, oh, there's always, uh, these uh, two people on a street corner, uh, across from the, the center square of town that are offering a Bible class. And uh, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're up there today. And we saw there was two young ladies. And then I got a little bit closer. And on the side of the uh, booth that they, they had it up there, it's uh, org. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, mm. and and you would think then, well, oh, that's that's nice that they're studying the Bible. Uh, well, they they do study the Bible and they do claim to be Christian, but they also deny that God is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equal in glory, uh, and uh, they they ultimately end up uh, trying to build like any false religion, end up trying to build heaven on earth by doing good works rather than, like you said, by trusting the righteousness of Christ. I was thinking, too, just that the common in our culture today is is turning Jesus into someone who turns a blind eye to sin in love um, and just love and acceptance like Jesus would when that's really not the message that Jesus 
had. They're twisting it and, and being accepting of sin because, well, that's just okay. That's the way they are and that's their lifestyle. Um, and we should just turn another blind eye to it basically and, and ignore that and accept it. Jeremy, you said you were walking downtown uh, and did you go down you know, the, the town square there and see the nativity scene? I haven't been yeah, down there. I'm yeah. assuming they have one. Mm-hmm. Do they also have a, an atheist scene there as well? I didn't see it if there was. Okay. Well, the reason I ask is that in the past, you you haven't lived here that long, uh, but in the past when I used to read the newspaper, there'd always be articles about whether the atheists were going to be able to put up their scene because the Christians got to put up their nativity scene. And uh, you see that in, in our culture, too. They'll do whatever they can, you know, the, the spaghetti monster and so forth, because they just want to oppose Christ in any way. What would the scene look like? I don't remember. I, I think what they had, the one time I was down there and I saw it, it was just like plywood that was not put together. But it was, it was like an obelisk, you know, like you would see in, in D.C., because that's supposed to be some kind of atheistic symbol. It was not well done, not like the nativity scene that the Christians do downtown. But but obviously, I think one of the main w- ways that we see Christianity opposed and the way of Christ when we're talking about Herod is abortion. Uh, you know, that the festival, and it's hard to call it that, but the festival of the Holy Innocence in the church year is December 28th when the Christian church remembers those half a dozen or a dozen little boys that were killed because of the Christ, that they shed their blood for Christ who would one day shed their blood for them. Uh, when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him to leave Egypt, Ethan, why didn't he settle in Bethlehem? or anywhere else in Judea? Why did he go to Nazareth? Well, Archelaus, Herod's son, who was far worse than Herod himself, uh, had taken reign in that area, and and Joseph was nervous about going back to Bethlehem, and God directed him through um, a messenger to go elsewhere up to Galilee. So It kind of makes me think that, uh, although Mary was originally from Nazareth, that it says in the first part of Matthew 2 that they were in a house in uh, the, the the wise men came to a house to visit the baby Jesus and his parents. And then when it's right, Matthew is writing as though Joseph's first instinct was to go back to uh, Bethlehem and Judea. Uh, it, it really gives the strong impression that they had settled there and that that was their new home. And, uh, and it was, it was kind of a big deal to, say, okay, I guess now we can't go back to our, our, where we settled. We're going to go back to our original home. Um, that, that is, that's what I take out of this. Okay. And in that same podcast that I was listening to with Pat, with Professor Meyer, he was pointing out that, uh, you know, Joseph was probably from Bethlehem. Uh, so then he asked the same question, why go to Nazareth? Well, he was, a carpenter, and that's the way we usually translate that word uh, tecton in the Greek. But the word tecton can mean someone who works with wood as a carpenter, but also a stonemason and a bricklayer. And Professor Meyer was quoting another professor who talked about how uh, Herod Antipas was rebuilding the city of Sepphoris, the capital of Galilee. And you know it would take about 12 years, and he needed all kinds of Tectons, you know, carpenters and stonemasons and bricklayers. So maybe that would be the reason why Joseph, as a tecton, why he he goes to Nazareth and settles there, because there's work for him there. So, Jeremy, how did this fulfill another prophecy of settling in Nazareth? Well, Actually, the text never says that it was a direct prophecy, um, so I, I don't think we can call it a prophecy. Uh, he will be called a Nazarene. It's more like this is the tone that all the prophets had about the Messiah. He will be called a less than uh, upper-class member of society. 
uh, he would. Th- there's no there's no specific Bible passage in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. It's just more so the tone of all the prophets was constantly. He'll be called bad names. He'll be called, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. You could maybe say redneck or uh, blue collar. Uh, he'll be called. He'll be cl- called uh, uh, low income, um, and and that's that's really the the spirit of this last line in verse twenty three. Right, picking up that prophecy of Isaiah fifty three that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. So then, picking up from what Jeremy was saying, Ethan, how does this section of scripture help us understand the nature of Jesus' ministry? Well, he didn't really have a home. <laughs> uh, he was going to be wandering, basically traveling constantly and not really have a, a set home base um, throughout his ministry, too. Um, How about that humility and despised and rejected sure. that he was talking about as too? Yeah, I think um, just the idea that uh, while there would be those that would praise him for his, his mir- miraculous acts, he would constantly be also dealing with the rejection of being... Um, like you said, a Nazarene, someone who's not not good enough, the son of a carpenter, um, uh, and not accepted as as the Christ. Um, I I I personally find it interesting through this entire section how <clears throat> you know when we lay out plans and things get in the way and things go wrong, um, everything just kind of falls apart for us. Uh, but God's plans were so well laid out that even those who um, were seeking to oppose Him actually helped fulfill prophecy um, because it was so well laid out to to know exactly what hardships Joseph and Mary would face as they were um, raising Jesus, uh, that, that it would lay out perfectly into the plan of, of meeting all the prophecies. So. And then you know, with that, you know, think of that first promise of the Savior in Genesis 3.15 that the uh, to the serpent, that the serpent would strike the heel of the Messiah. And here uh, you see that the serpent is trying to do that through Herod. Uh, I saw a picture just the other day someone had shared on social media, and it was very interesting. They had all of the animals around the Holy Family in the manger or you know the stable and so forth, and then there was a snake underneath the manger coming out. Uh, just that concept of that the devil wanted Christ dead and he was going to use the government to do that. And God or the devil used the government eventually to get to Christ and to strike his heel. But that was all, like you said, Ethan, according to God's plan. And in his time, and in his time. That, that idea of when the time would fully come, which we're not there yet. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but when you when you think about that, he waited until the right time. He needed to fulfill his ministry because you could look at this and say, well, Jesus could have died as an infant; he still would have been our savior. Um, but there were all the prophecies to be fulfilled, and there was also just simply what God felt was the right timing, um, and He was going to protect him until that time was right. What we're really reading about here is the. Uh, visual worldly side of the uh, scene from revelation of the dragon that uh and and by the way dragon is a word that is i'm sorry uh dinosaur is a word that is fairly new in the english language um it, people in the 1800s and 1700s knew about dinosaurs uh they just called them dragons um, and so that's the, and the point I'm trying to make is that there's a very close correlation between the snake that was depicted in the nativity scene that you mentioned and the, the reptile, the fantastical reptile that, uh, is Satan in the book of revelation. Um, those are both the same, uh, creature that he's just mutated and become worse. Jeremy, how does this section of Scripture... And he was trying to eat the baby Jesus. Though. He was trying to be, eat the baby Jesus. And with that prophecy in Revelation, it's not, you know, the woman is not Mary. Mm. The woman is the Christian church. Yeah. And so, Mary was a believer, so she was also right, she part was, of it. Yes, okay. But you and I were also part of that. Right. So how does this section of Scripture help us understand the nature of the kingdom in which we're living and serving? I, I think uh, when you talk about 
all of the pronoun stuff and the woke uh, stuff and the LGBTQ and transgender stuff that you were mentioning before, uh, it'd be very easy for believers to get disheartened always hearing about that and being slammed with that in their faces all the time. Um, and uh, at the same time, this is a, a kingdom that is hidden. Even when the king was born, you wouldn't have been able to tell that he was a king. And so everything everything is hidden. Uh, the, 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 the kingship, his ruling power, you can't see it. Uh, looking back on it, you can see it. Uh, that, as Ethan was ta- talking about, that God worked all of these uh, snafus out to turn into fulfillments of prophecy. But uh, as we move forward, it's not going to be obvious that we are winning and that we are uh, on the side of the greatest hero ever. Right, and I don't know how it works for you guys as teachers at Shoreland. And one of the things that's a blessing of being a pastor is that, you know, as difficult as the ministry is, you know, I get people that will come up and, you know, thank me for being their pastor. You know, and I just had an email from one of our members the other day, and she just said, P.S., thanks for being, you know, my pastor and, you know, working with us and so forth. Because, yeah, the ministry is difficult when you see this darkness of the world uh, and everything else, all the opposition coming upon Christianity, and you think that the church is shrinking, and yet understanding, oh, this is the way Christianity is. And, and I think of a conversation I had last week with a young lady that uh, she's newly married, has a baby, and this young lady has not been in church in years. And I kind of almost given up hope on her, and yet she had reached out for baptism, and God uses these kinds of things. And then I talked to her and her husband, taught them about what baptism is, like a 30-minute Bible study. And I thought we were done, and then she brought up, well, you know, my husband, what would he, if he came to church here, would he need to be baptized? Because he was baptized at a different Lutheranist. No. And then she said, well, if he became a member, would I be able to take classes with him? Because that was a long time ago when I took classes. I said, this is cool. This is the Holy Spirit working on someone that I thought had lost faith. And yet that's the kind of kingdom that we are are working in that is one that there is oppression and captivity, and yet we are brought out of Egypt like Christ was, like Israel was. Anything else you guys want to bring up with this text? All right. You want to get into the epistle lesson, Jeremy? Galatians 4. Verses 4 to 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son to be born of a woman so that he would be born under the law in order to redeem those under the law so that, he, so that we would be adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to shout, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are also an heir of God through Christ. So, Ethan, how do you know the birth of Jesus was not random? It was not just a chance event. I think there's a lot of evidence for that throughout Scripture. But um, but what's I, your what's your gut <laughs> answer to that question? Uh, I, I'm going to go with the scriptural answer to that question, <laughs> and uh, um, just the idea there that the, it was God's timing. You know, He set the time. To, to be born in the way that he was. Um, this wasn't some random chance, um, you know, young lady who got herself into trouble. Uh, but it was, it was God choosing that. What makes this time possibly, it, you know, we're looking at, from our human perspective, what makes this time the right time? Jeremy, you want to? I don't know if we can totally answer that comprehensively um i think that uh you look at you you could talk about the pax romana about how yeah explain what that is just that um one of the most expansive world empires that has ever existed the roman empire uh was constantly conquering and taking over new territories and and spread through it's it, it was almost like the the British Empire of uh, not too long ago that 
the sun never sets on it, um, that there were, there were so many countries all over the world that had um, the Roman influence. And yet at the time that Jesus was born, there was um, a peace in the Roman Empire. They were not trying to expand and conquer and take over new countries. And and I, I'll just say on a personal level that I think it's it's interesting how obsessed people are still today with the Roman Empire. Like it's one of people's favorite topics for studying, for, you know, making podcasts, for making movies, for studying in history. It's just a fascinating era in history. And it it's like God put together this or he let this empire rise uh, that is so fascinating that that people still today want to focus on it, and you can't really focus on it without talking about this other Jew that was born in the middle of it, uh, and and you end up needing to learn about Christ and and the origins of Christianity because people are studying and and imitating the Roman Empire so much. And then with that Roman Empire, another couple of ideas would be that. Uh, the Romans are creating roads. So now there is that easy travel. So you can take the gospel. And then also the language, that you have the Greek language that everyone's going to know from the previous empire before the Romans, that everyone would have that one language that they would know in addition to their Egyptian or Aramaic language and so forth. You know, And uh, just before Christmas, we were over at a member's house playing games and they've got a shonen student over it that's living with them from Spain and his name is Rafa and he was playing the game with us and then uh, it was about coming up with words uh, for other words and then you know he did pretty well for you know English being a second language but there are a couple times he had to go to his Google Translate or uh, Rachel Bushkoff our third grade teacher who's pretty fluent in Spanish, would just translate for him. But just that idea that, I'm going to guess, you're probably pretty fluent in German, right? Pretty much. But you and I, we're just English, right? Two years of high school Spanish. Yeah. yeah. And and the thing is, is we're lost because we we know one language. Most of the, the world that travels, they know two languages. And this is a world that's traveling, and they're going to know those Two, you know, two languages, their own language, and then the Greek language, which then the Holy Spirit write has the holy writers write the New Testament in Greek so that everyone can read it, and then the the roads, and then the peace, uh, and then also, you know, you were getting to this, Ethan, is you know, this is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Yeah, just the means of execution, right? I mean, that Jesus would die on a tree. Um... That wouldn't have happened other other under other um, other empires empire. had different ways of executing people. Correct, but it, but his means of death was prophesied and and it was under that form too. I you know I think we can see it as we look back on it and see the prophecies and how they were fulfilled. But the truth is, um, as far as God is concerned, when the time had fully come, was just because that was the set time that He had established. Had He done it a different way, it would have been the right time. And under the right empire and under the, whatever it happened to be, it could have been two centuries later, it could have been 2,000 years later, it would have been the right time because it would have been the time God chose and God laid everything out. So I think looking back, we can see God clearly laid everything out to fit, you know, with the Pax Romani and, and all of that. But Jeremy, why did Jesus have to be born of a woman? Because men can't have babies. <laughs> Unless you're in our culture, 2022 in America, but yes. But why? Why uh, could well, he just it actually, remain God? It, to, it's gonna, my answer is going to lead into your next question, yeah. which is um, that. It, well, that's it, kind of like your wife was saying last week. Uh, Jesus had to take on human flesh because God can't die, and so He needs to be a human so He can die. Which is a really odd thing to say because dying isn't really an ability; it's kind of an inability more than <laughs> it's an ability. But but in order for that for God to do that he needs to be human and uh, that's really what's being emphasized here uh, and death is is kind of like the law god is above his law he can give the laws he he doesn't need to keep the laws uh, but in order for jesus to perfectly obey law uh, he also needs to be human and so that's why he's born of a woman 
so so that he's in a position where he can it's it's legitimate for him to keep laws right yeah so he's born under the law and there i was thinking about my time serving as pastor near fort knox which is a army base and we had a number of tank commanders that were part of our congregation and they talked about how they really looked up to you know their commanding officers when a, a tank blew its uh, its treads and you had to get down there in the muck and mud and change it and their commanding officers got down there with them they don't have to because they're above them they're above the law but they got down in the mud with them and that's what the son of god does is he gets down into the mud with us i i had never thought of it this uh, or thought of this before i wanted to ask you guys this Genesis 3.15, the promise is given to the serpent that the seed of a woman, uh, and I never thought of this before, you know, and you kind of, you, you mentioned it, Jeremy, offhandedly and humorously that you know, men can't have women, and yet, or men, men can't have babies, and yet also women can't have seeds, you know, the seed of a woman. Have you ever thought of that, that what this is saying is the seed of a woman that this is saying that this is going to be the virgin birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, there, there are a lot of uh, Bible scholars who have pointed out that within the first five chapters of Genesis, you can find all of Christian doctrine, either implicitly or explicitly uh, suggested. And uh, that, that, that's the point that they would, show for uh the the virgin birth that it says the the seed of the woman the woman doesn't normally have seed um there do, does not at all have seed it's she receives seed but uh that's not that's not biologically how it works and so i i suppose are you just making the point that this this is another thought that comes up with the word woman right yeah in galatians yeah and what you were talking about too of going back to genesis i heard a pastor recently say that when he has people reading the Bible, he has them reading Genesis and and the Gospel of John one chapter at a time, because he says he said that, and I haven't tried this, but he said how how John and Genesis, so Moses, they kind of fit together each each chapter, a couple of chapters as you go through, you know, just that those the teachings of of Scripture. Those main doctrines are right there, laid out in those two books by themselves. Ethan, how did how did Jesus' incarnation of God becoming man redeem those under law? Well, because being under the law, um, he he kept the law perfectly in our place to to pay the price, the ransom price that was needed for us. Um, you know, without being under the law, he couldn't be subject to the law, and he also um, would wouldn't die um, under the law and pay that pay that price yeah and uh, i was working on this uh, for a bible study on romans that you know that word redeem to buy back you and i are bought back it says freely by his grace and yet it's not cheap you know this is very expensive that you and i were bought back it costs the Son of God his life. You and I get that redemption free, but uh, but it costs Jesus. Jeremy, why is adoption a fitting comparison to our status in God's family? It goes back to what we were discussing in the Wives episode last week with um, the three ways that you don't become God's child. John said, uh, you are you are born of of God. You are born not of natural descent, not of human decision, not of a uh, husband's mood swing, but born of God. Uh, so it, it, I guess I'm focusing especially on that first one: born not of natural descent. Um, so th- that's that's how we are as God's children. We are not naturally. Uh, just automatically born into God's family just by being human. Our human race is fallen and corrupted. Um, so the only way for God now to make us his children is uh, to adopt us, and that's what he does through Jesus. Right, because we belonged initially to the devil. We're born in sin, belonging to the devil. And then 
it says that we are able to cry out, uh, Abba, Father. And, and I th- that's kind of special to me because my four daughters call me Abba. Uh, so when I talk to my oldest daughter on the phone, and I'll say, hello, Abigail, and she'll say, hello, Father, hello, Abba. Uh, they really say Abba. They do. My girls really do say Abba. Uh, ask them. Uh, the, the term, but that term Abba or Father, uh, it points to an endearing relationship. To think of our God is a God who will judge us on the last day, and we should be terrified of him, and yet Paul says that because we've been adopted as sons and daughters, we get to call him Abba. Father means we have no reason to fear him. Anything else you guys want to bring up with with this text? When I was teaching Galatians, I would always say about Abba that it's kind of like God's giving, the Holy Spirit is giving you a code word there. He's giving you a special inside track of uh, you want to melt your father's heart. You call you here's here's one thing you can call him. You can call him Abba. So do do your daughters does that do they melt your heart when they call you that? They do melt my heart. Yes. They see so they he's got saying here's here's how you can make me favorable to you. Just uh, he he's giving us for free uh, an extra endearing thing uh, to build up our relationship with him. But I have daughters, so they melt my hearts. I don't know about you guys with all sons if. If they melt your hearts by calling you Abba. No. I've never been called Abba. Me neither. <laughs> All right. Well, I will talk to your sons about that. All right. We'll wrap it up here. This is Michael Zarling with Ethan Hutchinson. And I hope you'll be able to lighten up your New Year's party. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends. Then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>